2021 has been a tumultuous year for geopolitics and international security. COVID-19 has continued, we saw an assault on US democracy at the capital, a military coup in Myanmar, and we've also seen the announcement of AUKUS and the first Quad Leaders Summit. Brendan Nicholson and Anastasia Kapetis break down some of the major developments from this year and what they'll be watching going into 2022. Hello Anastasia. Well, it's been a, a very long year and a very packed year. It seems like it's gone on forever. It is. It's that, that strange time switch that's happened in COVID where things seem to have gone on forever but also have taken two seconds to unfold. So with that, um, in terms of being a big year, in terms of themes, Brendan, what, what's really stood out for you? Well, obviously Joe Biden mm -hmm. taking over from Trump. It's very significant. The discord in the United States, I think, is, is worrying. It was almost unthinkable for most of my life, which has been quite a long one, that democracy could be threatened in the United States, but it really feels like it's been badly rattled. And we've had the COVID developments. We've had... Um, yeah, I'd probably also add it, it's been a big year for climate change. There's been a real shift uh, in climate change politics globally um, uh, and also... Uh, in terms of the actual effects of climate change and people experiencing some pretty brutal effects uh, for the first time in the last year as well. It's also been a, a big shift in the US's posture on terrorism. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it's, there's been big shifts in how countries deal with big tech uh, and in the efforts to control their activities. And that's happened in different ways in the EU, in China and the US. Well, it's interesting. It's taken this long like I think the first report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was about 1987. The science has been consistent all the way through and it's taking this long for populations and, and, and politicians to actually catch up with it and start taking serious action in most parts of the world. Australia feels a little like it's been dragged along kicking and screaming, but we're, we're gradually getting there. That's true. It's a really interesting point about about climate change politics that it's not like nobody knew, um, and that this is a this is a new development. So uh, why that is the case is is something that we can unpack. But shall we start by um, going through a little bit chronologically to order a, a wrap up of the year and start with January way back in January of this year. The first thing that happened after the new year. Uh, which was the Capitol riots on, on January the 6th. Well, it was extraordinary that that this could happen. Like we're getting used to appalling shootings and, and such behaviour in the United States because of their loose gun culture. But to actually see people physically surrounding and attacking their parliament is just an extraordinary thing. And... Uh, there's two things that have struck me about the whole thing, this idea that such a huge proportion of Americans, a large minority, believe that Trump was robbed and the number of causes and cases that got dragged into this. So the, the gullibility and the anger, it's the same sort of thing with the anti-vaxxers and people demonstrating in the streets of Australian cities. It's just gullible, believe things that you would find it very, very difficult to understand, um, the arguments uh, are, are just so spurious, but they seem to be clung to vigorously and, and the levels of anger that arise out of it and the levels of anger in the capital 
with um, gibbets and, and threats to hang people like Nancy Pelosi and whatever, are just extraordinary and quite frightening in a way in the, in the long term. I think that's right. So, I mean, the, the images themselves are so shocking, but how it's what we found out about that day since is also pretty shocking. So um, in terms of who organised those riots, evidence is more and more evidence is emerging that people actually inside the Capitol building, people actually inside the administration, people actually inside the president's office had had uh, key roles in organising um, that those protests on the day and in, uh, in some cases, egging on the violence inside. So how the US political system is going to resolve these issues, deal with these issues, is going to be very, very interesting because I think at the time, I remember there was a lot of op-ed saying the capital attacks are so shocking, Republicans will have to pull back their rhetoric and, uh, and, and change course. They did not change course. If anything, their capital riots pushed them further into more extreme behaviour. So now we have the Republican deification of people like Carl Rittenhouse, for example. They pushed that big lie of Trump's even further. Uh, no one has backed away from that in any substantive way, except for a couple of outliers like Mitch McConnell. So I think the broadest effect is to push uh, the Republicans even further to the right. It would be very interesting to see how the American public react to that. It's got, I think, serious implications for a country like Australia, as we'll talk a little later about AUKUS and submarines and our reliance on the United States. We are in a an increasingly close alliance with the United States and we're becoming more and more dependent on them for cutting-edge technology to give us a, a chance of coming out at least equal in a war. But at the same time, their institutions have taken such a colossal battering that who knows how the country's going to come back from it. The assumption, which I thought was a perfectly sensible one, that Republicans would recoil from the whole Trump era, refresh themselves and come back battered but, but renewed and more to the centre, just seems to be um, possibly not going to happen. Yes, uh, and that's of, of real concern um, to really countries around the world who are looking for a degree of stability, leadership, familiarity um, from the US in the coming years. But Looking ahead next year, we're looking at the midterms in 20, uh, 2022 and then, of course, the next presidential election. And the other really disturbing development is the level of gerrymandering and election fixing that seems to also be going on. So the carving up of electoral districts to give Republicans six or seven extra seats, the winding back of, of, of civil liberties, especially uh, for, for women in terms of abortion rights, very draconian laws coming in. The fixing of the Supreme Court. The fixing of the Supreme Court. So these are, you know, these are very, very disturbing developments and uh, what some commentators fear, and this is from across the, the political spectrum, um, is that in 2022, if Republicans uh, take the House and, and the Senate, then that's kind of it for the Biden administration's legislative agenda, obviously. Uh, but then that sets up a, a 2024 where a, a Republican president gets in and they also control two houses again. And what then the Republicans do to democracy, to the notion of a republic after that? Well, we haven't actually seen much of a backlash 
from the the other side to the Republicans, be that the Democrats or anybody else. And you can see that happening when people become increasingly frustrated and angered by the amount of control that the Republicans have taken. Yeah, so it would be interesting to see how the other side of politics really begins to organise um, from really here on in. Um, and here uh, the organisers with the most energy seem to be people like Tracy Abrams um, in Texas, is, uh, sorry, in Georgia, who's now running for governor. But real grassroots campaigning on the Democrat side um, and how much political energy they'll be able to bring into this year. Yeah, another aspect of this is the extent to which we've seen we, we got used to the threat of Islamist terrorism and that, that appeared to be the face of terrorism we were concerned about, but it just does appear that in the longer term, far-right terrorism is probably going to be more dangerous to our democratic institutions. That's certainly the feeling of most security agencies here in the US uh, and, and in the UK and also in Europe, of course, as well. The difference between Islamist terrorism and right-wing extremism is that there's more of a continuum from acts of terror through to kind of insurgencies, militias, through to mainstream politics. So that's the real difference. Right-wing terror has a relationship with, with right-wing politics in some parts of the world, and that's concerning. And when you look at what's being said, the sort of posters that people are carrying in the streets of Melbourne and, and Sydney and, and sort of crazy anti-vax protesters, you know, the willingness to attack and assault police over an issue, you know, basically demanding some sort of constitutional right to catch COVID. Like I, I sort of half mm. joked to a friend that, you know, during the Blitz, did you have Londoners demonstrating in the streets that they didn't want to go down into the air raid shelters, they'd run around demanding a, a, some sort of right to be bombed by Heinkels. It, it, it probably didn't happen, but uh, so it's hard to understand what's actually driving this, but a lot of it's coming out of the crazies in the United States. Yeah, so I think it's one of the things that we can take from from that set of trends is that um, any any big social shock or economic shock or political shock can be weaponized very quickly um, through now an interconnected, now global network of a digital network, essentially, of people that hold similar sets of ideas um, and that radicalisation on political issues can happen much more quickly than it ever has in the past um, because we are all now connected by social media. That's how most people get their news. That's how most people form their worldview on any particular issue. So... That's January, and those are the, the, the one of you know the big themes that happened in January. There's others, um, of course. There was a the China-India border clash. The US also rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, so it was you know again a big month uh, for climate leadership. Uh, are there any of those issues that you want to dig a bit more into? Well, clearly, the world's acting on climate. It's a question of whether the pace of fossil fuel usage can be slowed down to the point where disaster is avoided. And I think the fact, it's taken the fact that we've got manifestations of climate change and water shortages and fires and, and, and a range of problems like that have just given us an idea of what might be coming. And in terms of like the US rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, it was 
uh, one of the first things that Biden did when he got into power was released an executive order setting out the US cl climate position uh, in terms of economics, in terms of social cohesion, um, in, in terms of security. So really introduced the notion of climate security into the heart of American foreign policy. And I think that was really significant and we've seen that play out all year. That's what I would I'd probably uh, stands out for me from January. So Biden gets in, the first thing he does really is climate um, and pursues a pretty ambitious climate agenda from that point on. That That's also demonstrated what we were talking about a bit earlier, and that is the absolutely crucial role of the United States. Mm -hmm. And for all his fairly extreme views on a whole stack of American domestic issues, Donald Trump basically weakened the whole world order by pulling resources and backing out of all sorts of organisations uh, just at a time of a colossal pandemic. That's right. And so the Biden administration was at pains to show America is back and that was one of the, one of the ways they did it. Moving on to February, um, a couple of things, uh, a couple of other really big developments, and that was the Myanmar coup kicked off that particular month. And I think at least... For me, this was uh, the end of a particular development in, in Myanmar where a decade ago, essentially, the ruling regime had uh, attempted to democratise, to pull in foreign investment, to lessen dependence on China, um, and that political project came to an end in February. It's fascinating the extent to which individuals can change the course of history in a place like this with... Um, with the election of Aung San Suu Kyi, it appeared that Burma might be heading down a more democratic path. But also Burma has been a, a country that's been largely invisible to much of the world. We don't really know a lot about what's going on there. They've had fairly ferocious wars on a range of fronts being waged with, with significant casualties and a whole lot of rebel armies around the place in various parts of Burma. Um, the the treatment of the Rohingyas, murders of probably ten thousand. That's right, genocidal treatment people, of, of uh, yeah Rohingya. It was deeply community. shocking, and it's a country which is ripe for influence by China. Yeah, even though that you know the the regime has a not a completely straightforward relationship um, with China, but I just will say one thing: you you mentioned all of the uh, rebel movements that that sit along um, the Burmese border um, in, with the rest of Southeast Asia, those kinds of conflicts seem to be um, picking up pace. So I think, you know, looking forward in terms of, you know, what effect does, does this coup have um, for geopolitics um, in the Mekong region, really this is like acts like an open sore um, that has the potential to, to really destabilise all of those border areas yet again and also, you know, draw in a lot of political and economic energy from the region um, as well and has the potential, again, to spread cross-border too. Again, it's, it's difficult to see how this particular situation gets resolved quickly. No, well, it's a deeply divided, resource-rich country that's certainly a target for all sorts of people. Trying to work out how this may resolve itself, the regime seems to be becoming increasingly brutal. That's right, and it's likely not to have uh, any effect in dampening ethnic separatism on their borders. So how the regime 
begins to uh, try and stabilise the country is actually anyone's guess. In terms of the current trajectory, that's, that's mm. not going to be possible. The other thing that happened in February was the imprisonment of um, Alexander Navalny, mm. um, the Russian opposition activist, and that made huge news at the time. And one of the reasons it did was because people were asking the question, does this mean there is real opposition to Putin's regime in Russia? And might this change the course of, of Russian politics? What did you think about that? Well, I think it says no, basically, to that, to that question. Putin, for all the occasional commentary and polling and whatever, seems to indicate that his, his position is weakening, just seems to go from strength to strength and become more and more aggressive. The idea of just blatantly locking people up and, and having the same sort of attitude in places like Belarus where the, the behaviour is very similar. Navalny, I think, was extraordinarily brave to go back and he's possibly going to pay a very serious price for it. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things uh, for me. Uh, one is that, it, again, it, it marked the end of Putin as an authoritarian that took a lot of trouble to persuade and to use political means to get what he wanted. And with Navalny, he kind of stopped doing that. Um, and ushered in a, a different era of much more of a repressive approach to governance. Now, I think, for me at least, it doesn't mean that he's gone from strength to strength. I think the rise of Navalny showed up weaknesses in the regime. And if you look at Russia's long-term trajectory, the trend lines are not particularly positive. And you can see that with their, uh, their inability to manage COVID just for a start. But economically, Russia is under threat from energy transition. In terms of political governance, repression gives you ever-diminishing returns, really, politically. Also, Putin and his, and his cronies are getting older. They have less energy. They have less patience, less enthusiasm, you know, for politics in a way. And the transition from Putin to something else as he ages is very unclear for Russia. Who's going to take over? He hasn't named a successor. This is the classic problem for autocrats. So Russia has kind of at the same time set itself up um, for a succession crisis as well as an economic crisis uh, as well as a social crisis. And an ageing crisis. And an ageing crisis as well. So I think that is, is going to be pretty brutal to watch and we'll talk more about Russia later on. But I think if we can, Brendan, can we actually jump forward a couple of months? Of course, lots of things happened in the middle of that to a tech story, which is the ransomware attack on the colonial pipeline in California. What was the significance of that? Well, the significance was, and, and again, it was interpreted in a, in a number of different ways. It appeared that things were shut down just because of the threat. And it, it, it demonstrated, I think, the frailty and the ease with which our institutions and our infrastructure can actually be targeted and the difficulty of actually protecting it and the increasing tendency of big organisations just to pay off the ransomware mm. crooks and that makes it more dangerous. It's a bit like paying kidnappers. You might save the life of somebody that's much loved and uh, in the process of this act of kindness, place more lives in danger. Well, it's uh, the same with infrastructure to some extent. It clearly is, I think, beyond the abilities of governments to actually stop this sort of stuff. They've got to be a key part of it, but it's really going to be up to industry and cooperation between industry and government 
to actually protect infrastructure. And this goes right through to hospitals and um, fuel supplies. You know, sometimes it's just a perception of an attack is enough to cause a rush, and as in the case of the Colonial Pipeline, to cause massive shortages. And, and we just, it's actually rather frightening again to see just how thin the veneer of civilization is with when you see it grinding to a halt because of something like that. I think that's really true in the sense that, you know, we're completely dependent in almost every sense on, on digital systems and the, this ransomware attack showed the real fragility of those systems but also that there's an emerging business model that's kind of symbiotic between insurance companies um, and, and increasingly organised cyber criminals where essentially the cyber criminals work out the price point to which a company finds just easier to pay out from insurance um, rather than investigate or, or or not pay or get the government involved, etc. So I think that's a, a bit of an interesting turning point this year and also obviously a disturbing one. The other thing for me that came out of that case was the fact that the government seized the ill-gotten gains from this particular attack, from this ransomware attack, um, and it was all in crypto and the government was able to seize it and freeze it. Now, that has implications for cryptocurrency everywhere just because the whole premise of cryptocurrency is the government can't touch it. That's its attraction. That's why it exists. So the government proved in, that it can reach out and touch crypto assets. So um, I think that's why another reason why that particular incident was was significant. There's a lot of boosterism about crypto at the moment. That this is absolutely the way of the future. That it is a way of ensuring yourself from political events. Uh, but I think this attack showed that that is maybe not true. Anastasia, you know, given the, the time. Yes. Another major development that caught a lot of people by surprise was um, the US withdrawal from Afghanistan and what followed. Yeah, it's surprising that people were surprised in, in many ways. So analysts for at least a decade have, have been predicting that this was kind of the end game. The Taliban themselves have been saying, you know, what was the phrase they always used? You know, that, you've um, got all you, the watches. You've got the watches, we've got the time. We've, we've got the time. Uh, and they were playing a game of strategic patience, you know, for for um, the last decade. But I think what the big surprise was, the Americans have put a massive effort into building up the, the armed forces in Afghanistan. And journalists were, get, were writing stories saying that people in outposts hadn't been paid, they, had, they didn't have ammunition, they were under attack and in great danger. And stories like this popped up from time to time, so they almost became ho-hum. But there was obviously a massive disenchantment with the, with the government in Kabul. And what was extraordinary and has never really been fully explained or explored was there was a perception that there'd be at least a, a giant battle for Afghanistan between the government forces who are much better equipped, more numerous, with basically set up as proper armies in the, in the image of the US forces. And instead of there being any real pitched battles, there are a few battles at out, outposts, but then one garrison after another just folded. Um, yeah. And quite often the troops were sent home. So a few analysts have pointed out that the big problem there was air power. So um, Afghan army troops couldn't get to where the fight was. 
uh, and that just left a vacuum for the Taliban to walk into. The second thing is that the US and others never solved the, the basic political legitimacy question um, for, for the Afghan government, um, that the Afghan government was perceived as, as corrupt, as venal and not committed actually to Afghanistan. And that was only proved for some by uh, Ashraf Ghani's uh, flight very quickly after the Taliban lo- looked like they were moving onto Kabul. So, and, and the Afghans, the Afghan soldier, going right back to the days of the British Empire, and and well before that, had reputations of being incredibly fierce fighters who just love a fight. Well, you know, these guys clearly didn't. They were deeply disillusioned, and now we're in sort of looking at a situation where you could well see. Islamic State in an escalating conflict with um, with the Taliban. It's interesting to see how things might play out there. I think there are a couple of issues. One was the huge efforts that um, mo- mainly civil society made to get uh, Afghans at risk, at political risk, um, out of Afghanistan. That was a huge worldwide effort coordinated not so much by governments but by civil society organisations. Um, and it may be a sign of organisations to come, how the international community might start to organise in the future on other shocks um, as well when governments fail to move into those breaches. So I thought that was a really interesting aspect. Um, I think in terms of governance, I think the Taliban are finding out governance is much more boring than than freedom fighting, Um, much more difficult. Now they're the ones who are in charge, but they're the ones who bear all the responsibility as well. I think they're finding that really difficult. And I think um, how they're going to balance all the sort of other insurgent groups that might want to either have a safe haven, uh, and I'm thinking uh, here about groups like Etiam who uh, are on the run from China, for example. China said to the Taliban, you know, we can't recognise you if you give these guys a safe haven. Uh, Also uh, ISIS, uh, Khorasan province, so the ISIS ISIS factions in Afghanistan uh, and struggles for power there are all big questions for the Taliban government. But what we also might see is successive waves of refugees because of that probable continuing conflict. Shall we skip from that to AUKUS, the biggest thing that's happened in Australian national security since whenever? Well, it was extraordinary. The fact that it was kept so carefully secret and successfully secret was was mind-blowing. There was apparently a very small number of people in our Defence Department knew what was actually going on. It's extremely significant in a whole lot of different ways, and it's not just about nuclear-powered submarines, but the idea that for years, if you ever asked an admiral in Australia or anyone in the Defence Department, how can we have a regionally superior submarine, which they kept saying we would have, if it's diesel-electric and has to run near the surface every 72 hours or something, an ocean with a significant number of nuclear submarines in the hands of all sorts of people, good and bad. And you always got the answer, well, nuclear is not an option for us. Then all of a sudden everything changed, felt like overnight, and and nuclear-powered submarines were an option. And not just any old nuclear-powered submarines, highly enriched uranium nuclear submarines. Yeah. So I think out of that there are a lot of questions still to be resolved about that particular submarine deal and of course the UK and the US and us are going into an 18-month scoping process and feasibility study process all of that sort of stuff but I think for Australia what's interesting to note is that the big news spike globally around AUKUS and there was a really big one around the announcement was not so much about those issues but 
but about the effect on the transatlantic alliance. So in the US, the big discussion was uh, not so much about the unanswered questions of AUKUS or how it might affect China or, or those questions. It was really about the French and uh, how was the US going to repair its relationship with the French. So in Australia, that was kind of dismissed and you know our, our government figures said you know the French have to get over it. But in the US and in Washington, it was a very different discussion. Well, the French go back as an ally with the United States right back to the very beginning. And I think that probably the Morrison government was in a difficult position because it appears it's likely, given the French reaction, that if they had told the French, that the French would probably have put a lot of, kicked up a big fuss with Biden and the whole deal may have fallen apart before anyone ever knew it was happening. It's been quite a year. It has, and the proliferation implications will be ongoing. So, I mean, there are proliferation implications here. Um, they, they, I think they are resolvable. But nonetheless, opponents of AUKUS have really seized on the proliferation issues as a way of slowing down the development and delivery of elite submarines. So we'll see how that unfolds over the next year. We wanted to talk about the Quad very briefly uh, and just to say that um, the Quad has now been elevated to the leader's level and this is a pretty significant development from the Biden administration. It's a kind of a bit of a signature uh, as well as AUKUS. And those two things together essentially uh, bring us much more layered minilateralism in the region. And uh, again, it's in its early days um, and still working out an agenda. But a lot of that is going to centre on grey zone, on climate, um, those sorts of issues. I just Briefly wanted to talk about uh, Angela Merkel finishing up as Chancellor of Germany, another massive end of era. I will just say that. Mm. There's a lot of people very, very nervous about what's going to happen next for Germany. She was a, seen as a huge stabiliser of the European project. Uh, and so when she leaves, what will happen next? Well, Merkel is another who, who's demonstrated just the power of personality and the power of ideals and, and individual. What she's achieved is quite extraordinary. Opening Germany's arms to vast numbers of refugees from the from the Middle East was an extraordinary brave thing to do, and she got hammered for it. But she does seem to have pulled it off. It seems that they've been assimilated in, in large part successfully in a country that has been concerned about an ageing population and a, and a thinning population. Her critics have been extremely angered and excited about it, but overall, it appears that that's one decision that she made where she was leading the world. It was compassionate. It was considered. It was probably economically sound. Mm. Yeah. And so I think that now she's kind of stepped down. And I just wanted to also add that when she stepped down, that she played two songs, and one of which was 80s punk icon Nina Hagen, which mm. hints at a secret side um, yeah. to Angela that we didn't know about. But also that, you know, again, going on some of the big questions for Europe, how is it going to participate in the broader geopolitical competition that's going on? Will its attitude to China harden? What will it do about the Nord Stream gas pipeline? These are some of the questions that Germany will be looking at geopolitically going into the new year. And of course, how will Germany and Europe respond um, to the weaponisation of refugees by Belarus? So that, yeah. these are some big issues there. Well, it's a big year that's passed and another big year coming. 
That's right. But before we, we leave it there, Brendan, I just wanted to raise one more thing. One again, another end of big end of era development. And that is the way that governments are basically trying to control big tech. So over the last four years, at least, the perception has grown not only in the West, but also in China, that these companies are too big, um, that their power is potentially too damaging. But how to rein them back in is a vexed question. But that question has begun to be asked extremely seriously. The Facebook papers were so damaging for, for Facebook in, in, in those terms. It didn't affect their share price. The share price went up because of COVID. Uh, but in political terms, the gloss has well and truly fallen off a lot of those companies um, and governments have begun to get very, very serious about uh, and even looking at things like uh, antitrust legislation, breaking big tech companies up. We'll see how that unfolds in the new year too because that both touches on not just economics, but really germane to the political futures of Western democracies too. Well, you can see what's happened in places like uh, Myanmar, where activists have been talking about this extraordinarily vicious campaign that's been run on Facebook um, against the Rohingyas and others. Now, for people like us who worked in the media for much of our lives, we had to meet standards in newspapers. Our management's and our owners couldn't allow open slather. Newspapers are pretty diverse and standards ranged fairly widely from, from low to high, but there were standards and there was a, an attempt to maintain them. And that just That's seems right. to be out of control yeah. on social media. That's right. So these social media companies are really facing questions yeah. about their ability to facilitate yeah. political violence. And that'll be the big question for them yeah. in the coming year. So it's been brilliant working with you this year, Brendan. And um, and, uh, and thanks for chatting about the year that was. Thanks, Anastasia. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, you had a conversation with Anastasia Kapetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist, and Brendan Nicholson, Executive Editor of The Strategist. Don't forget to look out for our final episode of the year next week. Thanks for listening.